Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The CV CV Report. TPS Report. The CV Report. Give us one word to describe what you're going through right now. Sucky. <laughs> Sucky. Yeah. I know it's just a Nissan Frontier, but in my mind, this thing's an M1 Abrams tank. Honey, take the wheel. I'm going to stick my head out of the sunroof. Look, any self-respecting veteran should grow a beard and have a belly. That's the dumbest thing I've heard all day. Like, if we're going to start getting angry now, it's it's a little late. Is live in D.C. with the update on all of this. Good morning. Maybe. I guess not. The CV Report. Welcome to the CV Report. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about killer climate change and how climate change itself, according to a former Secretary of the Navy, is one of the biggest threats to national security. That's right. Global warming could be a threat to the United States military. Our guest is the Honorable Mr. Ray Mabus, a former Secretary of the Navy and former ambassador to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And in addition to the global warming threat, he'll also talk about the looming threat we have with Iran. But first, we'll hear a story that you're going to want to hear if you're a Vietnam War or Korean War veteran. All right, now in our first segment on the CV Report, we're going to chat again with ConnectingVets.com reporter Abby Bennett and uh, find out some more news on diseases related to Agent Orange exposure and the veteran's ability to receive VA disability benefits for that. I know this is something that so many vets need to know about. Abby, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good. Talk to me about what you discovered here because this, um, I don't know, do I, do I use the word unsettling? Sure. Um, So in March, Dr. Richard Stone, who is the acting head of the Veterans Health Administration, told a congressional committee that he hoped in about 90 days to have a decision on whether to include four more diseases in the sort of group of diseases that the VA automatically assumes should be granted disability benefits because of it exposure to Agent Orange. So there are four more diseases that studies have shown could be linked to Agent Orange exposure. And he hoped in 90 days we would have an answer on whether or not people who had those issues and were exposed can get their disability benefits. Now, it's been 90 days. And I checked in with the VA, and they said they have not made a decision. And I repeatedly asked if there was a timeline for that decision, and they just didn't respond. Wow. Uh, where have we heard that before? I mean, uh, so frustrating. Uh, what are the diseases that they were deliberating on? Because I know Agent Orange can uh, manifest itself or complications related to Agent Orange exposure can, you know, manifest itself in a variety of diseases. 
So I think that's really key is that even decades and decades later, we are still figuring out all of the things that Agent Orange exposure can cause. And so the four that have been recently linked are bladder cancer, hypertension, or high blood pressure, um, hypothyroidism, and Parkinson's-like symptoms. Hmm. All of those have a connection to Agent Orange exposure. Wow. And if they were to just assume or they were just if they were to just accept the fact that those were presumptive or the, that they would presume that those are related to Agent Orange, it would save the veteran hours of paperwork and appeals. I mean, it would just be like, okay, go to your doctor, get your checkup. Oh my gosh, you have this. Boom. Benefits just start kicking in. It could cut through a lot of red tape for veterans who are suffering from these health concerns who believe that they were exposed to Agent Orange. Um, if the VA were to accept these as what's called presumptive, which means the VA says, if you have these mm -hmm. and you served in an area where we know for a fact Agent Orange may have been used, you automatically get disability benefits. All it takes is that being in your record and you having those health mm -hmm. concerns. Um, right now, the veteran would have to somehow prove on their own that they had been exposed and that those issues were directly linked. And even then, you know, it's just, it's so much more for the veteran to go through. Versus, gobs and gobs of paperwork, service right. records, show us when you were in, show us when you served. I mean, gosh, so frustrating. And to bring it into a real perspective, I took a phone call the other day mm -hmm. on our office line, which I normally never answer, right? Because you know me, I mean, I'm in the studio here and I just press my buttons and I make my, you know, shows and do the audio thing. I don't normally answer the damn phone. And I did. And it's a story I think you're working on, which will probably come out a little bit later, but without giving away too much, without naming the individuals involved, share with me who was on that phone that I transferred to you. Sure. It was the widow of a uh, veteran who served in Korea in the DMZ, where we also know Agent Orange to have been used. Mm -hmm. um, and her husband passed away um, early this year from bladder cancer um, and other uh, health concerns. And, you know, that's a that's a prime example of exactly what we're talking about. Somebody who had these health concerns. And it's and crazy to think that right there, you and I have an example that just, what, four days before this story was published or like a week before this story was published, we had a phone call come into our office of a veteran who passed away due to complications from bladder cancer. Mm -hmm. And to think that that guy may still be here, that proud American veteran might not have died. Or if anything, even if we couldn't keep him from being recruited to God's army and going to heaven, we could at least make that widow's life a little easier by ensuring that there are VA disability benefits that she can continue to receive. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the big question that I wanted answered when I came to them several times with requests for what their timeline would be for making this decision. You know, there are thousands of veterans waiting to hear, you know, whether or not the VA will accept these health concerns um, and make them eligible for disability benefits. So, I absolutely will continue to check in with the VA about that. But, you know, they're they're very unresponsive when it comes to things like this. Um, and so far they've they've said what they were going to say. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, unfortunately, that's not enough and doesn't give answers to the veterans that they deserve. But I do know this, that the issue is the nail and you, my friend, are the hammer. 
Keep up the great work, Abby. We look forward to you following this because we know our veterans deserve their benefits and deserve the VA's undivided attention. Uh, I can follow you on Twitter at Abby R. Bennett. Appreciate you. Find more of your reporting at ConnectingVets.com. Thanks a lot, Abby. Thank you. My next guest on the CV Report is an American politician, a former governor of the state of Mississippi, former diplomat to Saudi Arabia, and he served as the 75th United States Secretary of the Navy from 2009 to 2017. He's an alum of Harvard, Johns Hopkins, and the University of Mississippi. But what I like most is he's a former officer in the world's finest Navy and a salty officer to boot with a surface warfare pin. Let's say hello to Mr. Ray Mavis. Hey, Phil. I'm glad to be with you today. Pleasure to be with you too, sir. And uh, real quick, as we're both Navy vets, I just want to say thank you for picking the Navy and representing us well. Tell me a little bit about where you were first stationed. I was stationed the whole time on um, a cruiser, the USS Little Rock, CLG-4. A small boy, uh, yeah. It was out of, uh, out of Newport, Rhode Island, and uh, spent most of my time in the North Atlantic and a little bit in the Mediterranean. But uh, height of the Cold War. And um, it was uh, it was one, one of the most consequential times of my life. You know, looking back on it, I'm really glad I I had that time in the Navy. And um, the only thing I'll correct you on is I do have a surface warfare pin, but I was given that when I was Secretary of the Navy because I was in so long ago when I served that uh, we didn't have a warfare pin. <laughs> We didn't have a designator. The, the aviators had their wings. The submariners had their dolphins. And we were just black shoe sailors. I was going to say, you, you know? were just a and, black uh, shoe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate you because I was a black shoe on a carrier as well. And let me tell you, the aviators and all the squadron guys, you know, they got all the glory. And every time a television camera came to cover something, they, you know, they wanted a pilot in the shot. And here I was with my black shoes, you know, just a deck guy. <laughs> keeping the passageways clean. And I'm glad to know that at least with that surface designation, uh, having been on a small boy, you not only know about uh, being in the fleet, but you also know how to probably man a mop if you had to. So that's a cr- critical part of being you, on a ship. You learn a lot of different things. Uh, I mean, all of a sudden I was 21 years old and I was the mother, the father, the priest, the rabbi, the uh, banker, the psychiatrist for – 60 people. And I was the most dangerous thing in the U S military. I was a junior officer, Uh, (laughs) but I, I I, like a lot of people had a chief that saved me and uh, chief Finney took good care of me and made sure that I didn't, uh, I didn't mess up too badly. Behind a lot of success stories is a good chief or master chief out there. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Couldn't do a lot of what the military does without our senior enlisted. That's for damn sure. Now, they prepared you to go on to do a lot of incredible great things, as we heard in the read-in here with your resume. But among the things I have not talked with many veterans and many politicians and many leaders with on this show is a different kind of threat to our national security, and that's climate change. Um, you'll be the first. Explain to me why climate change is such a vexing issue and why, especially with concerns to national security, we should be so worried about it. Well, I'm happy to do that, and thank you for giving me the opportunity. In the first place, the United States military has recognized climate change as a serious threat to national security since at least 2003 under the George W. Bush administration. Uh, When looking out at the threats that we, we were facing, They put climate change up as one of the very serious threats. 
facing the U.S. military and something that the military had to prepare for. But the ways that it, it intersects with national security, first and just the most visible and the most obvious, are our bases. I, mean, I was in charge of the Navy and Marines. We tend to have bases on shore, you know, on the water, mm-hmm. right there. And if we don't do something about sea level rise caused by climate change, Within the lives of people alive today, Norfolk, Virginia, the biggest Navy base in the world, is going to disappear. It's going to go underwater. And it's already, you're already seeing it with these king tides, these sunny day tides that you used to see maybe once every couple of years. Now you're seeing them several times a month. And we've got a readiness issue right now because if you need to get the fleet to sea uh, in an emergency, you may not be able to because people may not be able to get to their ship. They may not be able to get to that base because the roads are flooded because these of these floods. And it's not just the bases on shore uh, or on the sea on the uh, that that we're dealing with. Off an Air Force base in Nebraska went underwater because of a big storm. And there are the GAO has identified about 100 bases that are at high risk because of climate change, either because of rising sea levels or because of increased frequency and intensity of storms or because of things like wildfires uh, in, in California. So that's, that's the first way. But the second way, and a much bigger thing, is that as these storms get more frequent and more intense, as droughts get longer and more frequent, as floods get bigger and more frequent, the first responders, as you well know, Phil, the first responders both in this country and around the world are the United States Navy and Marines. And so when you have these climate disasters, a lot of times instability follows, and instability can turn into chaos, and chaos can very quickly turn into conflict. And so the lives of sailors and Marines are being increasingly put at risk. And the third thing is that you're seeing so many cross-border immigrations now because of climate change. You're seeing people fleeing droughts or floods or storms, and it's beginning to really stretch and stress a lot of countries and the militaries in those countries. We today in the U.S. already have internally displaced people um, because of climate change. There's an island off the coast of Louisiana. There's an island off the coast of Maryland both of which have gone underwater, and our government, as it should have, has had to move people. But it's, it's uprooted generations, uh, their lives, and they've had to move because their homes have simply disappeared. And so our military recognizes that. Our military continues to recognize that today. They continue to prepare for the effects of climate change, but what they can't adequately prepare for are things like Norfolk. I mean, to, if we don't 
do something about the cause. If we don't slow down or hopefully turn back, sea level rise is caused, caused by climate change. We're not going to have enough money to, to save Norfolk. Uh, you're either going to have to raise it, you're going to have to protect it with dikes or doors or something, or you're going to have to move it. And any of those choices would cost billions and billions and billions of dollars that Congress simply hasn't not only give, given the Navy any money to begin to prepare, they haven't given the Navy any, any money to try to look at how to do this, these things. Mm. So there's been a lack of foresight. I mean, you know, in Congress, uh, the long-term thinking is thinking until the next election and not, um, and not to do things now to protect us uh, a little ways down the road. But the last thing I'll say about this is every study that's come out is said that climate change is not only real and here, but the timelines are moving up. It is accelerating. So we thought we had much more time just, say, five years ago than today the models show. And so the, the notion that some people are saying, well, it's just not happening or this is fake or we, I, we don't believe this, these climate change deniers, there's not a single reputable scientist, there's not a single reputable study that says that. And to deny that sort of facts puts not only our military at risk, but every citizen of this country and every citizen of this world at risk. Indeed. In fact, I've read some of your writing on it, and you say that currently um, the administration's actions are something right out of Big Tobacco's playbook. Uh, you wrote that it's in the teeth of overwhelming evidence that they've used bogus reports denying that cigarettes were harmful back in the day. Um, you're saying that the current administration is doing that with a climate change. Yeah, they if they don't like the they don't like the science. They don't like the, what the facts are telling them. So, for purely political reasons and purely money reasons. They are just trying to muddy the waters, trying to raise a question as to whether this, these things exist. And like I said, I, I grew up during the, the days of, you know, the Surgeon General in the 60s said cigarettes are really bad for you. It took until the late 90s to, to have some big impacts on that because of this of big tobaccos just trying to muddy the waters, just trying to throw out phony evidence, just trying to keep from doing things, just trying to uh, to draw it out as long as possible to make as much money as possible. And the same thing is is happening. Hmm. Um, you know, the administration was uh, reported to be looking at putting together a new panel to look at climate change to show that it, it wasn't happening. And you're not going to find anybody reputable, any scientist or anybody who, uh, who has looked at this issue at all that will say that. Uh, that doesn't seem to matter. And it's not just this administration. It's the folks in Congress that are denying it. And you know, the, first, the first 
obligation of a government. So the president and Congress, governors, state legislatures, the first the first obligation that they have is to protect their citizens. And this administration and a lot of members of Congress just aren't doing that. And they're not doing it for political reasons. And that deeply, deeply disturbs me as as an American, but also particularly as a former military uh, officer and member of member of our armed forces to not protect the people that are protecting us and not protect our citizens just is a complete dereliction of duty. Indeed. Um, I want to ask, because you're privy to some things that a lot of people don't normally get to see. I would imagine as a you know former Secretary of the Navy, you get to see some scientific reports or people come to you with this evidence. Um, uh, my dad was a geologist. Uh, was in, he was involved in mining, and you know he worked for the Department of Interior. Um, he would always love to tell me the story of history of the world through rocks and the various layers. And I've always taken from that that on a geological timeline, which is hundreds of thousands of years— you know, these changes happened on Earth and there were weather patterns and there were things that went on that are not occurring today, that are not influencing our environment today. Are you convinced with the data you've seen that, like, geologically speaking, we're just not in a pattern right now where there's some weather going on, but like, say, 10,000 years from now, it will be completely reversed and and, and, and there won't be these rising seas or the seas will level out and, and, and new areas will be made. I mean, are, are you convinced totally that the city of Norfolk, that base where I was stationed, um, that it'll be hard for people to get to duty if they do call the ships to go to sea because of a massive storm? Yes, I'm absolutely, totally convinced. And, and so is every scientist like your dad. I mean, it. yes, we have had these long-term um, million-year or 100,000-year swings in our climate, but what we have never had before is the human activity, that uh, the buildup of things like CO2, the buildup of methane in our atmosphere. And I don't have to, you know, yeah, I had some access to things that, um, most people don't, but you don't have to have access to that. All the reports that are public have come to almost exactly the same conclusion, that these changes are not a part of a normal cycle, that they are caused by humans, that they can be fixed, uh, by humans, but the time that we have to fix them is getting shorter and shorter. Uh, it used to be that, I mean, as, as recently as just a few years ago, you thought, well, we've got the rest of the century to try to figure this out. And if we start lowering emissions and lowering CO2, lowering other things in the atmosphere that we're putting in there, then we'll be okay. And now um, it looks like we've got probably 10 years to do that at the most. And it's going to require not a gradual change. It's going to require an immediate change. And if you want to do it for non-climate reasons, that's fine. Um, 
if we don't shift our economy away from the economy that we have today, and the shift has already begun and uh, from fossil fuels and things like that to sustainable um, energy, to elect- electrification of vehicles, to things like this, our economy is going to really suffer because the economy of coal and oil is going away. It is an old economy. The economy that uh, is coming is one of renewables. And there are already more solar jobs, more jobs in the solar industry than there are in all fossil fuel industries combined. And that's only going to grow. Same thing with wind, same thing with biofuels, same thing with all these renewables. And if if we fall behind in this, our economy and our people are not going to be able to make this transition to a higher-paying, better, better jobs for people, but also ones that will allow people to, to breathe, allow people to live healthy lives, allow this country and this world to survive. And, you know, your dad being a geologist, was a scientist. And he believed, as he should have, the facts that those rocks told him. That, but that's what is not happening today. Hmm. People are not believing scientific facts. They're trying to muddy the water on whether these facts exist and whether they're correct. And they're doing it to simply try to hold back change or slow it down and they're doing it for political and financial reasons and that is just going to harm it's going to harm our military pretty dramatically but it also has the potential to harm every citizen of this country very Mm. dramatically certainly worthy words to consider and uh You've given it a lot of thought. I know there's a lot of debate still going on, and it's interesting to hear how it does apply to those of us that really consider national security and the military's interests, uh, both as active duty and former service members ourselves. Um, I, I'm still blown away by that Norfolk if, stat that you put out there. Um, well, I can only imagine because having been there for so long. Um, I, I wanted to just kind of wrap up and get maybe one more snapshot of how this sure. can play out nationally, if I can. Um, we talk about the things we can do. We talk about the job creation and the economics of, of embracing alternative energies. Uh, we talk about the things we could do with renewables and, and, and the ways that we could change our auto industry even with more electric cars. But we also are an economy of things. Um, we all love to go to our big box retail stores. You and I both probably shop at the same brand stores oftentimes that are lined with thousands of products that uh, there isn't one of them that isn't made in China. And we love the wide selection, low cost things that line every shelf we go to. But yet, if we did everything we could right about environment, about environmental issues, we still couldn't control the fact that the majority of what we're buying is made overseas. And there's no EPA mandating China do things properly. There's no restrictions on Malaysia using fossil fuels to run its factories. I mean... How do we, on our own little square of sand on the beach, fix the global issue? Well, number one, you're absolutely right that everybody's got to do it. We, 
we can't do the whole thing by ourselves. However, it's not an excuse to say other people are doing it, that we shouldn't do it, that we shouldn't lead in this. And we, this country, burns more fossil fuels than anybody else on Earth. So we can have a bigger impact than anybody else. And if you look at how economies change, if you look at how things change, I mean, to say that we shouldn't change today because of the current economy that we have, it's sort of like saying 110 years ago or so, we, we shouldn't change because we're going to put blacksmiths out of business, because we're going to put buggy whip manufacturers out of business, right, because, right. you know, this, this new thing called cars just isn't conducive to the economy that we have. The economy changes all the time. And, yes, we should, we should push a China. We should push a Malaysia. We should push an Indonesia to do this. And the world should push it. But we have lost the moral high ground. We have lost the scientific high ground when we deny that it's happening. And when we pull out of things like the Paris Agreement, um, the, the states that are doing the best are the states that recognize this the most. And interestingly enough, the people that are changing this the most are business because it affects their bottom line. The companies that are on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, so the companies that are doing the best job in terms of sustainability, in terms of energy, in terms of all these things, have outperformed the market for the last five years. So if you want to do it for just a bottom line thing, and business is recognizing this, and I I think that that's one of the reasons. I mean, when this administration rolled back the – um, the mileage requirements for cars and the electrification requirement for cars, the people who opposed it the most were the car companies. They said, we can't compete on the world if we don't have this, these mileage standards. We can't compete in the world if we don't move to electrification. And so regardless of what the government says, these industries are going to continue to do it. The only ones that aren't are the ones that uh, are just going to, they're going to go away no matter what. There are so many fewer coal miners today than there were just two years ago. Not because this administration has been trying to prop up coal, but because it just makes no sense economically. It makes no sense from the environment, but the bottom line is there for Utilities, the bottom line is there for business. So, you know, I don't care if you if you change because of national security. I don't care if you change for the bottom line. I don't care if you change because you want your children to inherit a, a healthy planet and to be able to breathe and drink the water as long as you do something. But there are compelling reasons to do it for all those reasons, and particularly for people like you and me who not only were in the military, but who who believe in the notion of service and who believe in the notion that the military ought to lead 
in things of importance to this country. Well said, and that's about the best crafted argument I've ever heard, Mr. Mabus. I appreciate you sharing it with me because uh, it seems like every time I hear somebody talking climate change or they talk about the issues of the environment, you know, they, they're they just not my speed, and I don't always understand them. You know, like they look at an F-150 that I might drive and they look at their Prius and they say that I'm the problem. And we tend to get bogged down in these like labels we give each other, whereas what you've just done is kind of taken it, you know, up a few thousand feet looking down and giving me more of a bird's eye view. And I really do appreciate that insight. Um, I, I could talk to you for hours. You got insight into all kinds of things. Before we get out of here, can I just ask a former secretary of the Navy um, and a former Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, uh, your thoughts on the complexities and the issues that we're dealing with in the Gulf right now. There are so many things going on uh, that also ties into the international economies. And pardon me for oversimplifying it, but it seems to be a fight between the Sunni and the Shia, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. What do we do about the Iranian conflict and the global tension it's creating? I think these the this tension right now between us and Iran between Saudi and Iran could have all been avoided. I mean, we had a deal, wasn't a perfect deal, but it was a pretty good deal to keep the Iranians from getting a nuclear weapon. And in exchange, they were going to be welcomed back into the community of nations, having some assets unfrozen, uh, the Iranian people seem to be really a democratically oriented people. They have been held down by really autocratic and pretty dumb government. But, but we had this deal. And this administration comes in with no notion of what to replace it with and says, this president says, well, I'm pulling out of the deal. I don't like the deal. But not, okay, I'm pulling out of the deal. Here's the deal I would like to have. I'd like to modify it. Just I'm pulling out. And then putting, quote, maximum pressure on Iran. If, if a country is under maximum economic pressure, they're going to begin to – most countries just aren't going to go under. They're going to fight back. And the, their most effective way of fighting back is by actions in the Straits of Hormuz. And, this, and the Gulf of Oman and the Arabian Gulf. Um, and, you know, if there was a conflict, we, the U.S. Navy, the U.S. military, we would win. But it would be at a huge cost. It would be at a huge cost in terms of lives. It would be at a huge cost in terms of just money. It would probably crash the world's economy. Um going along. And the other thing that really, well, there are two other things that really worry me. One is that in this sort of tit for tat, uh, back and forth, that there may be something that just spirals out of control. That somebody does something that just lights the fuse and that we can't, that we can't control it. And suddenly we're in a really big conflict. And, it, you know, we invaded Iran, uh, Iraq in 2003. Iran is three times as many people and more land than that. We're still in Iraq. We, we never had enough people there. We never had enough 
to to do regime change and then to rebuild the nation. You do not want to get into a land war with a country as big as Iran. You want to figure out a way uh, around this. You want to figure out a way where everybody wins. And the other thing that worries me is if Iran, which they said they're going to do, if they quit abiding by the terms of the nuclear agreement and start enriching uranium so that instead of 15 years to get to a weapon, they can get to it in a few months, I don't think the Saudis are going to not try to get a weapon of their own. And so you're going to have an increasingly a nuclear part of the world that is pretty unstable just on the best of days. And so it is it is in our best interest to try to figure out a way out of this short of military force. Now, again, as I said, we will win, uh, at least at sea. But, you know, the Straits of Hormuz would be closed for a while. We don't get much oil, but the rest of the world does coming through that strait. And because oil is a global commodity and because it's traded a lot of times based on rumor and speculation or fear, um, you know, our economy could go down along with the rest of them. Mm. So I'm, I know I'm being really cheery this morning. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> no, everything. no, sir, I really appreciate it. And it, you know what? It actually ties into where we started and it underscores maybe the economic importance to be uh, liberating ourselves from the dependence on fossil fuels so that no matter what those two ideological nations do, do and no matter how they sort their affairs between the Sunni and the Shia, um, we may not be reliant on them as heavily, and in fact can be self-reliant. So that it doesn't matter if those two fools get in a bar fight, um, we're yeah. going to be all right. <laughs> well, you know, I moved the Navy and Marines off fossil fuels as a war fighting measure. I didn't do it for climate change. I didn't do it to be green. I did it because it made us better as a military. Um, you know, the Marines were losing a Marine killed or wounded for every 50 convoys of fuel we brought into Afghanistan. That was way too high a price to pay. Now Marines are making most of their energy where they fight. Um, you know, they, they take it in with them and they don't have to be resupplied just by giving a, um, company of Marines rollable solar panels and stick in their packs. Saves a company of Marines 700 pounds of batteries. And so they don't have to hump them. Yeah. And they don't also have to be resupplied. We've got SEAL teams in the field that are net zero in terms of energy and water. They use alternative energy like solar or wind to purify water. So they can stay out almost indefinitely. And as one SEAL team commander told me, he said, you know, when you turn off the generator, you take a big target off your back. Oh, because yeah. bad guys think, okay, there's a generator. That's where the Americans are. And as he told me, you can hear them when they're trying to sneak up on you. You're not, you're not deafened by the generator. So as I said, I did that as a warfighting measure. 
it has some really good side effects in terms of climate change. But if you want to talk about it just in terms of making our military better, you can do that too. Wow. Thoroughly fascinating. Ray Mavis, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, and uh, you've opened my eyes. I mean, I have to admit that I, you know, I'm not a scientist, and certainly, you know, Dad, sorry, I didn't. I went into broadcasting instead of <laughs> instead of uh, engineering and science. But uh, I certainly appreciate the time, Mr. Mavis. Thank you so much, and don't be a stranger. I want to have you back on the CV report. Me too. Thank you, Phil. All right, sir. And take good care of yourself. You too now. Okay. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 